Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We desire to keep your righteous rules, and so give us life, O Lord, according to your word. Your testimonies are our heritage forever, for they are the joy of our hearts. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, open your word and incline our hearts to follow it forever. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you turn with me in God's word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews, chapter 5. We're going to consider uh, part of Hebrews chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 3. And after I read from God's Word, I'm also going to read the uh, Athanasian Creed, which you can find on the back uh, of the Psalter hymnal on page 853. And we're going to continue our consideration of the Athanasian Creed this evening. Uh, So first we want to read from God's Word, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 7 and reading through... Chapter 6, verse 3. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us. And then if you want to take up your Psalters, and as I said, turn to the back to page 853, we find the Athanasian Creed. We recited part of that creed together, but the Athanasian Creed is the kind of creed that doesn't lend itself uh, to the whole congregation reciting it together. Um, because it's kind of awkwardly phrased at times, and um, it can be hard for us all to keep together. Um, it's, a, it's a rather long creed, but it's a very important creed of the Christian church, one of the three creeds that we confess. So I'm going to read the whole creed uh, for us. Um, we're going to focus only on parts of it this evening, but this is a creed that teaches important things about the Trinity um, and about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to read the Athanasian Creed, one of the Christian creeds that we confess, Um, It uses the word Catholic several times, and you'll notice in that footnote that Catholic means universal, that there is one church across all times, places, and peoples. Um, That's what we mean by that. But here's what we confess in the Athanasian Creed. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. 
Now, this is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, but there is one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this Trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. 
From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith, that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Um, you can see why we don't often confess this creed together. It's rather long. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't capture uh, the, the concise nature of the other creeds that we tend to recite. Um, it's also an intensely theological creed. Um, that certainly comes out in the reading of it. Um, there are probably maybe places in that creed where we said, now what do we mean by that or why is that important? Um, and all of these things are, Im- are important, um, but it may take some persuading to convince people these days that these things are important. Um, it might be, you know, I'm not sure that if we put, you know, we're going to have a series on the Athanasian Creed in evenings on the sign out there that, you know, people will be like slamming on the brakes to say, whoa, I got to get in there and hear about this Athanasian Creed. Everyone's talking about it. Like, no, nobody's talking about it. Um, it, it. It contains important things. And even some people might say, well, do we really need a time to really break down the doctrine of the Trinity or to talk about the exact nature of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, is this, is this theological information the pressing need of our day? Um, is this what we really need to understand? And it might take some persuading uh, for some people to think that this is really important. Um, of course, the fact that we're going to take time and talk about it, I guess will sort of tips my hand to you that I think it's important uh, that, we, that we think about these things and that we talk about these things. Um, because especially when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, we acknowledge that in one sense that there are mysteries in the Bible that are beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Uh, that, that we're not going to be able to wholly wrap our minds around the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, that there's some of it that's going to remain a mystery to us. That God has revealed himself to us so that we can know him, but that doesn't mean we'll know everything about him. Um, when we think of God as the great God in heaven, it maybe shouldn't be surprising to us that we can't know everything about him, but we can know him. Um, that's what the Apostle John says in, in 1 John 5.20. We know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. God is knowable to us. We can know the God that we serve, uh, but we also know that that knowledge has limits. And because God is both knowable, but also because that knowledge has limits, that always puts us in a, in a sort of twofold danger. Um, either that we'll try to look beyond what can be known. There are people who have gotten themselves into a lot of trouble trying to go down roads of knowing what can't really be known about God. Um, the other danger is we're content with a kind of immature knowledge uh, that we say, you know, it's not really important to delve these depths. Um, I think I can get by just fine in my life not knowing everything the Athanasian Creed confesses about the Trinity or about the incarnation of Christ. Are these things really important for us to know? Um, it's especially become popular in our today and age to say, you know, I'm not so concerned about creeds, I'm more concerned about deeds. I'm not so interested in getting into, you know, what we believe. Isn't it more important that we're out living for the Lord? 
Um, and there's been a, a tendency from some people to say, you know, paying attention to things like this just distracts us from being the church in the world, um, from living for God. And certainly we don't want to be people who are, you know, creeds and no deeds. That wouldn't be a good kind of Christianity or a God-honoring kind of Christianity. Um, but I also think that oftentimes people who say, you know, I'm not interested in creeds, just deeds, uh, miss important truths about who God is um, and miss important facts. The Bible certainly doesn't ever leave us with the impression that a small amount of knowledge is a good thing. Um, that it's not a good thing to develop our minds and to get a mature knowledge of who God is so that we can actually serve the God who is the way he wants to be served. Um, the Bible warns in many places about um, People have small knowledge and the damage that small knowledge does. Um, just like it's sometimes popular to talk about, you know, deeds and creeds, it also is popular sometimes to say, well, that's not a salvation issue. You know, we can get into the minutia of Christianity and someone will say, well, that's not a salvation issue. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the reasons we looked at the Great Commission last time. Jesus doesn't say, go out into all the world and teach people all the salvation issues. Um, what does the Great Commission say? Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Um, God wants everything that's in his word taught. And that's because God wants to see disciples made. Disciples who know things about the Lord and who know the God they serve and serve him the way he wants to be served. There's plenty of warnings about small knowledge in the scriptures. Think of what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice how he puts those two things as opposed to one another. If you grow in grace and a knowledge of Jesus Christ, that will be a protection against error. It'll be a protection against instability in life. Um, that when someone comes to you with an error, you'll have some kind of stability to know what's true and what's false. Um, and that's why the writer of Hebrews is a little bit frustrated with his congregation. Um, because, you know, he, he wants to go on to some more serious theological issues in chapter 5, but he says the problem is you've, you've lost track of the basics. And he sort of says to his congregation, I'd wanted to come to you and build on the basics that we'd worked on, but I find that you actually need re-instructing in the basics, that you've gotten away from the basics, that you've forgotten something of the basics, and where I wanted to come and give you the solid food, I find that I have to kind of spoon feed you again. Um, you're not ready for the solid food. I've got to go back to, you know, giving you ground peas and spooning that into your mouth. You, you still need the basic things, and you should be beyond that by now because it's a dangerous thing to not be built up. Right? He says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's a danger in being unskilled. Uh, there's a danger in being lacking in lacking powers of 
discernment. Um, and these things are important issues. One of the interesting things that you, you find immediately when you study the Athanasian Creed is it differs from the other two creeds in, in one particular way. It differs from the, from the uh, Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed by saying, if you don't believe this, you can't be saved. Right? So it, it's saying explicitly these are salvation issues. To know who God is. To know who Jesus is, those are salvation issues. If we don't believe these things, we, we can't be saved. Um, and I think this kind of knowledge is especially important for the day and age in which we live. Um, where sometimes small knowledge is heralded as some kind of advantage. Um, you know, that you, you spend your time in theology, I'm out there living the Christian life. We don't want to oppose those two things to one another. Um, listen to what one uh, Reformed theologian said. In an anti-doctoral and anti-intellectual age, these articles of our Christian faith are far from popular. In the past, they occasioned widespread debate. Today, they are usually neglected or scorned. Characteristically, this essential doctrine of the tr Trinity has been ridiculed as a theological subtlety with no significance for life. It is rejected as an abstract and specious speculation which does violence to the simplicity of the scriptures. Such sectarians as the Jehovah's Witnesses inveigh against the Trinity in language echoing the arguments of heretics long since dead and forgotten while professing to be loyal to the Bible. The Orthodox possibly should share a large share of this blame for the present situation because they have failed to recognize and confess its unique value for faith and life. Uh, we want to talk about the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, the importance of understanding who God is, uh, the importance of understanding how God has revealed himself to us in the Word. And we want to think about taking it as being as important as the Athanasian Creed says it is. Um, that this is a salvation issue, this is a life and death issue to understand the God who is the God that we serve. So I'm going to talk basically just about the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity tonight as we see it um, unfolded for us in God's Word and in the Creed. Um, the Athanasian Creed begins and ends by reminding us that confessing one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity is essential for salvation. I look at the first two uh, paragraphs of the Athanasian Creed, first two numbers there, one and two. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Um, they saw these things as serious things. Um, and then we have the, the, the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity that's unfolded in um, Numbers 3 through 28. The, the true doctrine of who God is in himself and how he works. Um, and then the warning you see is repeated in number 28. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Um, and then it moves from the Trinity to the doctrine of the Incarnation. And that makes sense. How if, we, if God is three in one, um, and one of those persons is the Son, then when the Son comes into the world and is in Incarnation as the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we understand that Incarnation in light of the Trinity? Uh, the, the, the one follows from the other. And so we have this wonderful statement of, 
the, the Trinity of the doctrine of the Trinity and how it relates to the doctrine of the Incarnation. That's spelled out in paragraphs 29 through 43. And then you notice at the end again, there is a, another final warning. This is the Catholic faith, that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Um, and we might say, why, why include things like that in the creed? Is it just, you know, those were sort of meaner times and um, that's just how they liked to write creeds back then? Well, our other creeds don't contain statements like that. Um, they don't say those kinds of things explicitly. They don't condemn anyone. And you can see how someone might say, so are you saying that you're saved by what you confess? That somehow it's your, it's your theological GPA that saves you? Um, and of course, that's not what we want to say. You're saved not by the content of your faith, but by the object of your faith. You're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ in whom you put your faith and trust. Um, that's how we're saved. If you're saved by your theological GPA, I wouldn't have much hope for the thief on the cross. Um, so that's not what the creeds are saying at all. Um, but the creeds are written in a time that they're dealing with many heresies about who God is and who Jesus is, and they've seen the wreck and ruin that that works in churches and in lives. Uh, they've seen the danger of heresy that the Bible is warned about. Um, we can think of some of those warnings like we have in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Um, these are dangerous things, right? There are many false prophets in the world. There, there is the true Christ and there is an Antichrist abroad. Um, th these are serious struggles, serious things for the church to keep in mind. Uh, something similar is said in Titus 1, verses 9 through 15. Um, he must hold firm trust to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And why? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What does God's word remind us of? It reminds us that God's word always does two things. It instructs and edifies the faithful, and it subdues and silences the adversaries. Uh, we need it to teach the truth, and we need it to silence errors to be able to know what's true and what's false, what's true and what's unreliable. Um, and God's word always helps to do that. 
And all the creed is really saying here is you have to take the word of God's description of who God is seriously. It's the word of God that will lead you into truth about who God is and about who Jesus is. Um, It will help you be established in the truth. It will instruct you and it will edify. It will build you up in the true faith. Um, And it will silence those and subdue those who would teach otherwise. Um, we, we need that truth. We need that truth in our day. Um, there, are, there are many voices that, that claim to teach the truth. Um, and, and if we don't have some sure authority to rely on, we're going to be tossed to and fro. We're not going to have any sure and steadfast anchor for the soul apart from the Word of God. Um, and so the Creed is making the point here that anybody who refuses to receive the teaching of God's Word Um, on who God is and the truth of Christ's incarnation cannot hope to be saved. Um, It's it's the basic message of the scripture that you can't reject the God of the Bible with impunity. Um, Because who God is and who Jesus is touches on the heart of biblical truth. The Bible tells us very clearly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can see how someone said, see how easy that is? You don't, do you really need 44 lines in a creed? Isn't that just simple and straightforward? Who needs a bunch of doctrinal knowledge to make sense of that? It's so easy, why do you make it so difficult? But you see how every one of those statements is a doctrinal statement? that you need to understand, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, who is Jesus? What does it mean that he's Lord? What does it mean when it says God raised him from the dead? Someone might say, isn't Jesus God? Is that saying Jesus isn't God? How do we understand that text? What is it to make a true confession? Right, those are all theological questions. I mean, this was kind of brought home to me in, uh, in Torrance. There was, there was a gentleman who came to the Lord when he was in prison. And one of the ways that God used to build him up in the faith was that he was, as a new Christian, um, he had just started to read the Bible, just started to embrace the faith, and he got a new cellmate who was a Muslim. And the Muslim would see him reading his Bible and would say to him, well... You don't really believe that stuff, do you? He said, well, why not? Because um, he'd been raised to think that the Bible is true. And other guy said, well, you believe that, that Jesus was God. And he said, I remember thinking, I don't know. Do, is that what we believe? I'm just trying to read my Bible. I'm not sure. And so he said, I, I didn't really know what the truth was or who to ask. And there was a group of people I knew who were Christians who studied their Bibles off in the corner. And so after talking to this Muslim cellmate for a while and keeping him keeping me in my ear about Jesus is God and you can't really believe that, then he went and asked these Christians, do we believe that Jesus is God? And they said, yeah, here are some passages that, that show clearly that Jesus is God. And so he went back to his cell and said, yeah, we believe Jesus is God. See, it's right here in the Bible. And the guy said, well, you have all kinds of other problems with it, you believe. You guys believe in three gods. And there's only one God. 
And he said, I don't know, do we believe in three gods? And so he had to go back out and ask people again. And, and then he went to ask people, and then he met, you know, oneness Pentecostals who said, no, there's only one God, the Holy Spirit. And he met other sorts of people, and so he began to be very confused again because everybody had all kinds of different answers for that. Um, and by God's grace, he met someone who was Reformed who could walk him through the Scriptures and through true doctrine, and he came God used that to bring him to a, to a full knowledge of, of the Reformed faith, uh, a pretty impressive knowledge of the Reformed faith, really. Um, but, you know, it, it prompts those kinds of questions, and you realize that those are still live questions. Here's someone coming as a new Christian to the Lord in prison by the moving of the Spirit, and he's asking the question, do we believe in one God or three? Um, and it was important for him to know. It was important for him not just to be able to answer someone who didn't believe in these things, but also for his own knowledge of who God was and how God works. That these are, these are true and important things. Because yes, it's as simple as whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, but each one of those is important theological truths. Um, and Paul goes on to, to specify that later in Romans 10, right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, in studying the doctrine of the Trinity and studying the doctrine of the Incarnation, we're not trying to get into totally unnecessary you know, truths that are, that are not important. These, these touch on the basics of the faith. It's important to know who is the God we serve. How does God work? How has he revealed himself to us? How do we draw comfort from knowing who Jesus is and what he's done? Because the bottom line that the scriptures teach us is that a Jesus of your own imagination and a God of your own invention can't save you. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by that in the world, aren't we? Where people, You ask someone, who's God? And they'll say, well, I think God is... And then they say who they think God is. Um, and it's almost always who we hope God is. Um, or the God we make in our own mind in our own image, not the God who's made us in his image. Um, we need to know these things. These are important. And we are instructed by God's word not only to hold to the truth and teach the truth to build up God's people, but not to let the truth be ignored. You know, what's impressive about those generations of the church that really battled for the doctrine of the Trinity is this was so important to them that they were willing to be persecuted for it. They were willing to be jailed for it. They were willing to die for it. Um, they, they thought it was so important to do what God's word had told them to do, to contend for the faith to contend for the Lord and who he is, to contend for the truth about our Lord Jesus Christ, to do what Titus 2.15 told him to do, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, 
let no one disregard you. The church has a responsibility to stand for God's truth in this world um, and to preach God's truth with God's authority. Um, to preach that, that truth with authority. Um, to say, thus says the Lord, he wants you to know him. Not some human being's ideas about him, but him. Once you understand the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. What he did, not someone's idea of what he did. Uh, wants us to understand who Jesus is. And God has sent his word and his messengers in the world to make that clear. To testify about God. To remind us that we need help from teachers. All of us need help from teachers. And I always think of the, the Ethiopian eunuch sitting, reading his Isaiah scroll, but not having any idea what he's talking about. And needing Philip to come by in the book of Acts and help him to understand it. He doesn't know who's speaking. He doesn't know who he's talking about. He has it there in his hands, but he needs help to understand it. That's what we're trying to do. We want to understand the God that we have, uh, not the God of our imagination. That's the commission of the church, to do what this creed says, to teach the Catholic faith. The faith that the church has always embraced about who God is. Um, because it's the Lord who came once into the world who's coming again. He's coming in again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, and when he comes, he'll either be your adversary or your savior. You have to know who he is and how to get right with him. That's an important thing to teach in the word, to know. There's a judgment coming, as the creed specifies at the end, and only by faith in the Christ who is can we survive that judgment. And it's not just that these things are important, but we'll end with this. The reason they're important is because they'll edify your soul. It's a wonderful thing to understand who God is as he's revealed himself to us and just how different he is than how we are. Um, that he's a glorious God who is not limited the way we're limited. Who is eternal, who doesn't change, who's powerful, right? who loved us enough to become like us in our weakness. Right, that the, the, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was willing to forever unite himself to us. To come into this world and to be like us so that he can suffer and die. So that we would be with him in glory. That he's wholly other than what we are. And yet intimately connected to us by the work of Jesus Christ. And even though he was complete in and of himself, he came to unite himself to people who he didn't need, but who desperately needed him. That that's the kind of God we have. You see, these aren't just bare theological truths. These are glorious truths that will help us in our life. To grow not only in the knowledge of who God is, but grow in a gratitude that this kind of God would love us, that this kind of God would give himself for us, 
that this kind of God would come and save people like us so that he could bring us to be with him forever in glory. Because we don't add anything to him. But he has everything we need and freely pours that out on his people. That's a God we should want to continue to learn about. To understand more and more who is this God who would do those kinds of things for sinners like us. And by God's grace, I hope he'll help us as we go through to understand better who our God is in Trinity, in unity, and in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we realize that we are dealing with deep things as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we thank you for these things as you've presented them to us in your word, um, that you've given them to us for our own stability, for our own help and salvation, that we might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Lord, we pray that we would never tire of these things or, or think of them as bare theological exercises, but might see it as a wonderful opportunity for us to understand and to know you better, that you've revealed yourself to us, and we thank you for that precious truth, that you've revealed these things to us so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing him that we might have life in his name. So help us in these things, we pray, and may we glorify your name through them. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.